Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Due to popular demand, we had to have Dave Burke come back on the podcast in short order. In our last conversation, Dave and I did a little bit of a deep dive into the idea of looking and striving for perfection, but what it means to try to get there. And as you probably recall, Dave is a retired Marine fighter pilot who pretty much checked every possible box you can on things accomplished, airplanes flown, and experiences had in the military. And we are now able to tap into that wealth of experience to discuss cultural change, performance improvement, organizational improvement. And so he is back to get back into that subject matter. So Dave, thank you for coming back on the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear the popular demand was uh, loud enough to bring me back again. There you go. (laughs) So we're going to plant our feet firmly in one place because there are a ton of different roads that we can go off of from our last conversation. I think a, a good place for us to start is to start looking at and talking about culture within a team, culture within an organization. Yeah, for sure. You know, you and I have talked about this a lot, both online and offline, uh, which has been really great that we've been able to stay connected and just see all the similarities uh, and alignment in our two industries. And and I think what it boils down to is in some ways, culture is really not that complex. It's just a reflection of the most powerful influences in an organization, which are typically the senior leaders. You know, not always, but for the most part, it is. And what I've discovered in every organization I've been a part of as a brand new guy, as a mid-level guy, and as a senior guy, a, a, a kind of a C-suite executive uh, in military environment is that People in an environment, in a squadron, in a company, in a firm, any business, a hospital, what have you, people tend to just sort of get on board with the way business is done there. And if the culture is really good, brand new people show up, they see what the culture is like, and they just assimilate to that culture. And the exact same thing is true uh, when culture is bad. Uh, and people talk about culture change. You know, Culture gets so much discussion because it's such a powerful tool. But the reason why cultures are the way they are, I really don't think is that complicated. Uh, I think it's just a reflection of leadership. That's a really good place to start because we think about someone coming in the door for the first time, someone joining a hospitalist division for the first time, someone joining a surgical team for the first time, someone joining a fighter squadron for the first time. Yeah. The imprint of what they see, whether we're aware of it or not, in terms of how we're interacting when they first walk in the room, how we're communicating, how we onboard them. What do you think for two parts? What do you think the impact of that first couple of days, that first few interactions, that first impression is going to be? And if it's good or bad, how long do you think it's going to last? Because I'm not sure that we as leaders, we as members of an organization, maybe even realize just how important that first impression is going to be. I think that first impression is is critical uh, and kind of getting a little bit out of order. And I'll come back to that question. The reason I say that is that culture, cu- culture persists, good culture or bad culture that has really strong inertia 
and I think what you see is is what you typically get, and that lasts a very long time. And it's very uncommon for there to be culture change. I don't mean to imply that culture change is all that hard. It, it's difficult, but it's not certainly not impossible. But it just usually doesn't happen. I think for the reason that gets us back to that first part of the question is that you know most of the new people that show up to a company, a firm, a hospital, a fighter squadron, or everything in between, they're new people. They're relatively young folks. That's the majority of people coming in are your junior folks. They want to make a good impression. They want to figure out how to get their feet firmly planted underneath them. They're not going to make waves. They're not going to come with a bunch of big, bright ideas. They're not going to have a lot to say. They're just going to look around and absorb the environment and get on board. And that's what I did when I was a new guy. That was my objective is just to fit in and and get along and and learn how things are. And those first couple of days, you're going to make massive adjustments to who you are and how you are in that setting based on what that setting is like. And I think the influence that culture has on your newest folks is infinitely powerful and something you have to be very, very aware of because right away, most people are going to do their best to assimilate to the world around them. And if that assimilation is to a culture that's not a positive culture, you're just going to continue to breed that. And that's why culture is so persistent. Uh, And I think it works in both directions. So then if we use that as our starting point, that when someone is coming on board, we are going to probably permanently imprint them on the way that we're doing business. And if we're going to change our culture, we're going to have to bring them along for the ride. You can make that argument that we need to, in any organization, have a really clear picture and do that sort of self-examination of we're hiring, we're growing, we're building we are projecting a certain image. What are we actually projecting? We, we may think it's one thing. So when we do that, how do we first of all figure out what sort of culture we are projecting, what sort of interactions and the person that's joining our team, the someone that's observing what we're doing, how do we figure out exactly what that first impression is? That's a, that's a, a, a great, a great question. I think it brings up two things to consider. One is that introspection uh, you know, we deal with that all the time. There's not an organization I haven't been a part of where the need for that was very high and it's not all that common. And it, it boils down to just a, a, the level of humility you have to be able to look in the mirror and be honest in your own personal self-assessment and have a, an environment where you can be candid with your peers or, or even your subordinates or, or your superiors and say, hey, how are things going right here? How am I doing? What am I like? What's the environment here? What's my reputation? What do people think of this workplace? Uh, and and be able to solicit candid feedback. That sounds super easy to do. It's damn near impossible, if you ask me. It's it's very hard uh, for people to facilitate an environment where you're going to get that real candid feedback. So it makes that self-introspection, that self-reflection all the more important. And then the other thing that that is also very counterintuitive is, is we don't <laughs> – we don't really offer or value much the opinions of our, of our most junior folks. We value experience. Uh, certainly, I think in your industry, in my industry, our businesses, Mark, we value experience almost more than anything. And what goes along with that experience is sort of a reaffirmation of the way we're doing it and that comfort of, hey, I've been successful, so what I'm doing must be working. And if I do it uh, and it works, everybody else should do the same thing. You know, ironically, most businesses hire, you should hire for that person's potential contribution to make your team better. And that person should have a reason for wanting to be there. And probably your best resource to figure out what the culture's like in your company is the people you're bringing on board and wondering why they're there and what about the culture that they like. 
or maybe what about the culture that they're not aware of? Brand new guys on the team, brand new folks on the team can offer a ton. Uh, we just don't do a really good job of soliciting what they think. This idea of rapid feedback as part of an onboarding process for me, I think is one of those cornerstone parts of building your team. So we, you know, I've been a part of a team that's grown very, very quickly with lots and lots of new physicians joining. And that's something we actually have tried to be really conscious about is saying, this person has just joined our group. We should circle back with them and say, what worked with your onboarding process and what didn't? Because if you put a physician in a position where right out of the gate, they're going to drown, it's going to be bad for them, but it's also going to be bad for patient care. It's going to be bad for all of the things that are important. If you're able to put them in a position where they feel supported, they can move in a tempo that works for them. That's going to be a win across the board, but you have to harvest that information or you're going to have no idea how you're doing. Yeah. And you mentioned those negative effects of that. I mean, it literally will infect every aspect of the hospital and every aspect of the team. It'll affect future hiring. It'll, it'll affect everything. I mean, certainly the end state of patient care, uh, if I'm in your shoes, that's what I really want to make sure is the most protected. But because everything is so interconnected and everything is tethered to each other, that the impacts, the negative impacts permeate uh, in every direction. It's no different than in the military. I, I, honestly, Mark, it's really no different anywhere. And it gets to that idea of, of, you talked about that rapid feedback for onboarding. It reminds me of when I first checked into my first squadron, we had a thing called a 30, 60, 90 rule. You know, it was a little bit of a joke, but there's a lot of truth to it. The bottom line was the expectations that you wouldn't open your mouth for 30 days. You wouldn't say anything because nobody cared what you thought. And like I said, some of that was a little bit uh, humor and just kind of uh, new guy treatment, but some of it was was real. And this idea that we don't want to hear from the new people. We don't. And uh, that culture is is not healthy when we consider how powerfully influential that first period of time is, those first couple of days, first couple of day, uh, weeks or months, what a massive impact that has on the perpetuation of whatever the culture is and uh, the, the lifestyle, uh, the healthy uh, environment that those people are going to be working in. The first phase is, is critical. And that's the time that's least likely to solicit any real feedback. So we've identified this really as a core skill in building and also keeping track of where a team or an organization is culturally. You've had the opportunity over the last couple of years to work with lots of different teams, organizations, industries. Where do you think people are with this skill? How are we doing with it? And it, I would imagine it, if it's across the board, we're everywhere, that's fine. But what's your kind of gestalt of awareness of this core skill and ability to execute on it? Well, it's, I think it's limited. I, I think the we work with a broad range of companies. The best companies are the ones that are doing this really well. And the companies that, that need the most help with hiring, I think they recognize that what they need to be doing is not just hiring the right people or having a better sense of how to bring the right people on board, but how to incorporate their, uh, those new hires ability to contribute sooner. There's just not a lot of time for inefficiency these days. Uh, you can't afford to have your new folks uh, get on board and not contribute right away. Competition's too stiff. The the demand is, is too high. And, and um, what people are expecting from a deliverable standpoint is very high these days. And so there's not a lot of room for inefficiency and in who you bring on and how quickly those people contribute. The best companies 
uh, are run by leaders that are that have the most amount of humility, as you might guess, the most humble folks that are willing to find creative ways to have your newest people make contributions. Now, look, you're not going to bring a brand new guy off the street and put him in charge of the company. You know, nobody would would suggest that. And ev- like with every every issue in leadership, there is the striking the right balance. But if you bring someone in and you immediately make them to feel like they don't have a valued place in the company, and you make them feel like they should be marginalized until they prove themselves. Uh, you are creating and then perpetuating something that is not just unhealthy from a work environment. It's counterproductive to you being successful. Uh, there's really no reason to do it uh, because it doesn't help you deliver whatever it is that you're delivering, whether it's to patients or clients or customers or, or what have you. It just doesn't help you accomplish your objectives. And so the idea of figuring out how to make that happen as fast as possible and having those people feel that they're contributing and find ways to contribute even more, the people that figure that out the soonest are the people that are most successful. So we're working down this pathway in this conversation clearly of how do we do as a team or an organization, how do we do an assessment of our own culture? So we've kind of identified one core skill. We need to be accessing those who've just joined our team. Now let's take a different look. Let's think about the concept of you have a team that sits down at a table for their monthly meeting, and it comes up that we want to do an assessment of our culture, be either good or bad. Walk us through a a process by which any team or organization can do a pulse check on its own cultural shortfalls and its own cultural strengths. So if we kind of have the gumption and we're brave and we say, look, this is important and we need to do this. Let's do, let's do that self-assessment and let's, let's do that self-assessment of our team culture. What boxes do we need to check to make sure we're not missing anything when we when we take that deep dive, which could be a, probably a painful deep dive into it, really well, deep water? Yeah, what you just said, I think is th- that's the part that is critical. It, it's actually pretty easy to do sort of a wave top cursory self assessment. Um, hey, how do you feel you're doing in these categories? You know, the categories that we care about, you know, that I think about those 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 principles as laws of combat. You know where we talk about from the consulting piece, we, we look at very clear defined principles that, that we know touch every aspect of leadership. And so figuring out what it is you should be assessing really isn't that hard categorically where it gets really hard is, is when you're talking about the willingness to how deep are you willing to go to not just be self-aware and self-critical, but how, far you're willing to go to be just as equally critical of the people that work above you and work below you. And then the third element of that, you know, obviously the, the term 360 feedback is, is people understand that, but the real piece of it is how willing are you to hear the feedback of, from your subordinates, even your newest subordinates on what they think of you or what they think of the environment. What are we good at as a company? What are we good at as a team? What am I good at as a company? What am I good at as a team? I think you're going to typically find that between what the company is good at and what leadership is good at, there's a ton of alignment there. And the converse is true. What leaders aren't very good at, the company's not going to be good at. But what it what it takes is what you described at the very end is that leg- that real genuine willingness to go very deep into this. And the reason that's so important is that it will define everything about your team. And if you're not willing to go deep into identifying that problem, you're not going to be willing to go deep into solving that problem. If you're not willing to go deep into solving that problem, you're more than likely not all that interested to what other people think about you, about the culture there. And people are going to know that and feel that and not want to so offer 
inputs, even when it's solicited. They're going to assume when you ask them, hey, what do you think that you're really just look, they're really just looking for a very quick, cursory, somewhat meaningless response. So you've got to not just create the, the questions and create the process to ask those questions. You got to create the environment where you can prove and convince the people around you that you really mean it. And Mark, the best way to get people to really believe that you care about what you, they think of how you are doing and how we are doing as a team, what our strengths and weaknesses are, is for you to spend all of your time focusing on yourself and recognizing the things that you can do better and constantly be willing to tell people around you, this is what I think I'm doing wrong. This is what I'm going to do differently next time. This is how I'm going to get better. And if people see you do that, they're going to believe that you care about that. And if people see you never do that and one day out of the blue, they say, fill out this this assessment on me. I want to know what you think of me or think of the company. You're not going to get anywhere with that. It's a process that starts long in the past of proving to the people around you that that actually has meaning for you. And that's the hallmark of a brilliant, of a great leader. And it's something that's lacking in a lot of places. I want to press you on that a little bit because having done this for a while, I can tell when we're on a subject thread where a guest has a real passion for something and there's (laughs) always, there's always a story behind what's driving that higher level, that extra 10% of engagement and I don't know, fired upness uh, in, in terms of relating something. And you know, one of my great mentors has always told me that when, whenever you're trying to impress something on people and to make a lesson resonate, you got to get to the power of the story. So Dave, I got to ask you, there's a story in there somewhere. So let's see if we can prize that story out. Well, there's actually a lot of stories and and to be blunt, several people have been coming to mind as I'm telling you these stories. The the story that was that is continues to be the most powerful for me is the story uh, since we're talking about the idea of culture. It had nothing to do with an assessment or an evaluation. It just had to do with me walking into an environment that I had created in my mind uh, a perception of, of how I thought the environment would be and coming to find that the environment was totally different than I expected. And that was when I went up to Top Gun to be uh, a student. And then obviously when I went back to be an instructor, so I had multiple uh, visits up there and, you know, everybody goes as a student. It's a great experience. Very few of us are lucky enough to come back. Uh, but it's even uh, vastly different when you return uh, to be an instructor. I remember going there as a student and I remember expecting to learn a lot as a student. And I remember uh, expecting the, the teachers, the instructors there being to be, they're going to be really, really good in the airplane. They're going to be great teachers. They're going to be kind of magicians in the cockpit and be able to do things that I couldn't do. And I was going to learn a ton. That's, I think all students go up there with that expectation. And, and for the most part, that's typically how it works. But what blew my mind when I was there as a student, what was even more powerful when I went back as an instructor is how comfortable the pilot instructors at Top Gun are about talking about the things that they don't do well and how willing they are to highlight even the most, what appear to be the most minuscule error, the most minuscule mistake or the most minuscule lack of precision, which you think you could just literally ignore and it wouldn't matter to the outcome. I found myself surrounded by people really for the first time in my career that would sort of refuse to let those things go. And that those what, like I said, appear to these sort of insignificant little minuscule um, things that they wanted to identify. That's what that culture was all about. That culture was all about just a bunch of people that the irony is that they're almost 
they're better than almost anybody in the world at what they do. You know, fighter pilots at the weapon school, whether it's the Navy weapon school at Top Gun or the Air Force weapon school, they are the absolute top of their game. They're as good as anybody in the world are at flying airplanes and, and being an instructor uh, teaching fighter combat. And they're the most self-critical. They're the most self-aware and they're the most willing to share their flaws with the people around them. And the farther you get away from that level of excellence, the farther you get away from people being willing to talk about their mistakes. And so this counterintuitive connection between flaws, failures, and errors to excellence, um, that's directly connected to culture. When you see the people you look up to the most, whether they're your leaders, your boss, your mentors, the people you want to be like, and they are committed to exposing their flaws to you publicly – very. That's when you become comfortable ex- talking about your flaws and their flaws and they solicit real feedback and you give them real feedback about what you think of them and what you think of their performance and the, and the, what you think of the environment. And they can do the same for you and rank has no place and it, none of those things matter because you just want to get better. Um, and where that's most associated with is the people that were the best at what they did. And I just never expected that because my assumption is the reason they were so good is they didn't make a lot of mistakes. It's simply not the case, but it isn't just a matter of, of the mistakes. It's the willingness to reveal those mistakes and the people around them going, oh, I guess this is how it is around here. I'm going to get on board with this culture. I'm just going to do it that way because that's the best way to do it because I want to be like these guys. Um, and that's that's been really powerful for me throughout my career. And that's what led me to get more and more comfortable with talking about the things I did wrong. And, and I think that's allowed me to build cultures of the organizations that I was in charge of uh, to hopefully do the same thing. This idea of pegging a cultural assessment to the the ability to be accountable, I think, is really difficult to have a counter argument to. And I think that in the practice <laughs> of medicine, it's something that – and I think we touched on this in our last conversation. It's something where I think there's a struggle uh, to do that for a whole host of reasons. But I can give a story. One of my good buddies who's a retina surgeon talks to me about how at their big conferences over the last few years, they've made it a specific point to invite people to come up. And discuss their cases where something has gone wrong. And it started out being a really rocky thing. But these are people who are out of training. They're from all over the country. Some are in academics. Some are in private practice. They're all coming from different backgrounds. But they're all highly trained. Becoming a retina surgeon is not easy work. And they all do the similar types of procedures. And the stakes are incredibly high. And having this environment, what he said, I mean, he's told me very candidly when they first started doing it, man, that room was so uncomfortable. But those first few people who took that plunge and put themselves out there and said, you know, when I'm doing this case and I use this technique and this happened, I really wish I had done it this way. Or, hey, I realized I was distracted and I've taken these steps to minimize my distractions. It's become like one of the most popular parts of these big conferences now where people really want to hear that and think, oh, man, this guy's being really candid about the power of distraction and how it leads to error. What can I do when I go back to my operating room to minimize distractions and make sure people understand, hey, don't mess with me. When I get to this part of the case, I'm not to be distracted or whatever the case may be. When they're able to leverage those shared experiences in that manner of, look, we're here to try to get better. I'm not going to hammer you and you're not going to hammer me. The, the benefits have been, have been myriad. They're undeniable. Um, you know, it's funny. We, we've talked about this in the past that how much overlap there is between our past experiences and the industries we came from. And what I've discovered since then is that because I deal with virtually every industry in the world that you could possibly think of, it's, that is true everywhere. 
that quality, the power of that quality is true everywhere. Uh, and I'm actually starting to work on, on, I'm writing about that now. I'm, I'm filling out in a lot more depth than anything I ever thought about when I, I talked about the idea of perfection on the last time we just, we talked and the, the amount of, of subjects and, and the, the power that I'm recognizing in, in those revelations, there's a lot to be, to discuss. There's a lot to be written on, but what, what people figure out, what I figured out, and I think what most people eventually figure out if they're willing to make that leap is that that's where all your power comes from. That's where all your influence as a leader comes from. That's where all your capability as a leader comes from is when the people around you recognize that you are a flawed person because you're a human being like every other human being in the world. There are, there are flaws. And when you're willing to expose what those are strictly for the benefit of the people around you, that's when you become an influencer. That's when you become an influential leader. That's when you become a powerful force for making whatever it is that you want to make or create whatever you want to create or build you want to build. It's that idea that the exact opposite of what we all want to do, which is I don't want anybody to know about my mistakes. I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to hide them. And the better I get at doing my job, the less mistakes I make, the less people will know that the things I do wrong, the more I can gloss over these tiny little minuscule things and the more perfect thing people will think I'll be. And that that way, the better I'll be at my job. It's a hundred percent wrong. That's a hundred percent wrong. And the people that figure that out are the ones that are most successful. And the people that don't are the ones that are always limited in what their capability is. That doesn't mean they're not going to go on to be great and do great things. I mean, there are some really talented people out there. I don't mean to, to deny that, but the power of failure is so much more than the power of success. Because if I sat you down and said, Mark, you know, name your mentor, who, who's the person you look, looked up to the most in, in life? And that person said, Hey, Mark, I'm going to tell you everything I ever succeeded at in life. You'd listen to him. You certainly would enjoy that conversation. But if that same person said, Hey, Mark, I'm going to tell you every mistake I ever made in my life. You would be glued to that conversation. So I'm a new dad, as you and I have talked about as well. (laughs) I have a 19 month old. (laughs) And I think about that a lot of how am I going to influence my son in ways, both in ways that are positive so that he can fulfill his potential. And, and that is the hard truth that there will be many, many times where the ways that he and I will be able to come to agreement and, and hopefully be able to give him some, some good stepping stones and some good tools is going to be to admit the times that I wish I had done something differently in a position as opposed to here's a whole list of my accolades and plaudits yeah, and yeah, certificates that sure. I got. But getting back uh, to this, getting back to this team yeah. environment piece. So we've identified, right, this, the, the onboarding part is vital and soliciting yep. that feedback when we onboard somebody new so we understand what their impression of our culture is. We've, we've, I think it, it, from our last conversation, this one, it is, it's, it's, it, you can't escape from the fact that if you are a leader, you have to be accountable and developing that skill set to be able to admit your own mistakes in a manner that is empowering for those around you so that they can learn is is a huge part of this. But then we need to look at, I think, the third big piece is you've got this big team around you. They've been onboarded properly. They have been able to see your behaviors and they've been able to watch you stand in front and say, you know what, in this moment, I did this and a much better approach would have been for me to have done this because then we would have gotten the outcome that we wanted. How do we then get that big group of people 
to do those same things, to be able to be introspective, to be able to be accountable? Is it that combination of onboarding them properly and then role modeling properly? Or is there, are there other parts that we need to add so that if we have a team of three people or a team of 30 people or an organization of 5,000 people, yeah. how, what, is there another puzzle piece or do we just really need to focus on merging those no. two together? No, there is another piece. And and it's funny because now I'm I'm racking my brain about conversations we had in the last discussion because I think there's certainly some similarities. I think we talked about this to some degree last time is it's the ability to make the time to do it. Uh, I can't picture an industry that is more time constrained than yours, that is just simply hamstrung by the amount of work to be done the amount of high demand work to be done where there's not just uh, limited room for error and high risk, but there's a ton of liability as well. And, you know, those are factors that not every other industry deals with when you're talking about that individual, that personal liability for your mistakes. You know, there's a lot of factors that that I've learned in my time with healthcare that are, <laughs> that are, they're powerful forces that are undeniably powerful forces. But what becomes the hardest part in all of this is is finding the time and the environment to make those things explicit and some of that onboarding uh, without a doubt those two parts of it are critical um but what what typically happens is we get swept up in in the in the demands of of regular life and the demands of of how we do day-to-day operations and in your world those are high demand operations and it becomes cultural, it becomes normal to not address them. And uh, that can be really detrimental. You know, and we, where I came from, when we do missions and preparations, the debrief, the analysis was built into the schedule. It was assumed that was part of the event. Uh, it wasn't the flight time. It was specifically built for brief execution and debrief. And the largest chunk was always allocated towards debriefing. Uh, by design. And that's a luxury you have in training. Uh, that's not the luxury you have in combat or in the real world. Sometimes you come back from a mission and, and your next mission request is there waiting for you and you might only get a few minutes. And the the forces to prevent you from talking about it are really strong. And it's really incumbent on leadership to make that happen. Uh, and that's just, it's a lot easier said than done. It's something that has to be done. Uh, but the reasons to not do it uh, a lot of them, those are big, powerful forces working against you. Uh, in your case, you know, when you're dealing with patients, I can't imagine um, how tough that is. What I'm excited about with this conversation is we are taking some of the key pieces of the last time we spoke and we're giving it that larger context, which is really what I was hoping for. Yeah, so yeah. we have this idea of, right, we have to onboard properly. We have to be accountable as leaders and role model that sort of behavior. But then that third piece, and I agree with you 100%, to kind of click everything into place is to make sure that there is time that we prioritize this and that everybody realizes we, we know how to do the behavior properly. You've had the opportunity to express yourself, especially most, maybe most importantly, when you first joined to give your reflections of how we're doing right in this, how are we assessing culture? And then the third part is we have to prioritize and carve out some time. So whether it's in a division meeting or whether it's in a, you know, a huddle after, you've done a resuscitation in the intensive care unit, or you've had a big meeting and you've had a deadline. Did you meet your deadline? It's prioritizing and say, look, this is important work. And yes, we want to get home and we got to work out and we need to spend time with our families. This is important too. 
that I think is the skill that, you know, when you look at all of the different muscle groups that we're exercising, I think that might be the one where we could probably do a few extra reps. And, and it's also what you choose to do with that time. And that's part of the reason why it really is all those aspects together. Uh, if you can't rely on that onboarding process and that cultural development that you you initiate from day one, even that limited time that you have, if you carve out that time and you make it a priority, are you really talking about the real important, you know, if you've got 20 things to discuss and you've got time to talk about three of them, are you picking the three that you need to talk about? Because you can't do it all. Are you really, do you really have a culture in your organization? Do you really have the type of environment where someone gets up there and says, I got five minutes, I've got 10 minutes, I've got three of the 20 that I can get to. Okay, you know what I really want to do? I want to talk about the thing that makes me look the worst. I want to talk about the thing that makes me look the dumbest. I want to talk about the thing that reveals my biggest mistakes. Or I'm, or I'm, or am I going to migrate to the ones that are really aren't that bad and they make it look like I'm, I'm highlighting some good debrief points, but I'm really overlooking the ones that would really matter because they're the ones that expose me the greatest. So I've only got a chance to get through 10% of this because real life is out there and we can't just, you know, debrief forever or analyze stuff forever. So I'm going to pick and choose a couple of uh, well selected ones that are somewhat helpful, but they're really the wrong ones. So it isn't just a matter of making the time. Is this, Do you do the right things with the limited time that you have? And that gets down to that, that level of pure humility to say, oh, God, this is going to be embarrassing. Oh, God, this is going to be really painful. Oh, this is going to make me look really bad. But it's the one or two items that are actually the most valuable for everybody else. Those are the ones I'm going to spend our limited time on. So it's it's not just exercising; it's focusing that exercise on doing that the right thing there. And I get back to that comment earlier: is the irony is that if you're the leader that does that, and everybody realizes all Mark ever does with his limited amount of time for the debrief is to focus on the things that are the most embarrassing to him, that gives you the most amount of credibility. It makes you the best and most influential leader in the organization because everybody knows, hey, if you only got five minutes, all he's going to do is talk about the the one marquee giant mistake that he made uh, that is the most revealing and actually the most useful uh, as opposed to you could find us a bunch of other things and we did this, we did that. And everybody smile and nod and say thanks and you did the debrief and you said did what you said you're going to do. Everybody goes back to work. Uh, only you didn't accomplish as much as you could have accomplished in that, that limited amount of time. Are you willing to? To do that is kind of the biggest question there. And it, it, the only way you're going to be willing is if you've been brought up or bred in a culture that that's just how it is. That's just how it is around here. As you're saying those things, I'm smiling because as, as a leader, there's obviously a lot of journeys that I'm on to try to do a better job, to try to improve. One of the biggest ones that I continue to work on when I'm with my teams is that idea of number one, picking the right subject matter, right? And it's a, it's always a struggle. We have 20 things we need to talk about, but pulling out, having the discipline to say, we're only going to cover four of them yeah, is a constant struggle and then picking the right four. So as I'm hearing you tell that, you know, relay those lessons, I'm smiling because man, that is, that is daily work. And when I sit down to think about, okay, I'm going to sit down with my teams and we're going to think about these different things. Which ones am I going to pick? It's a struggle to, to pare that list down and then to represent these things correctly. So I'm really, really glad to hear you bring that up because it, it's a reminder for me as well. Like this is, this is, we're on the right track with this journey, but it's going to be a slog for a little while. Yeah. And your readers should, should be very clear in hearing this for me. 
I'm not good at this either. This is hard for me. <laughs> hard. I, I am it's not hard. speaking from, from, you know, you know, the, the mountaintop here. Uh, this is ha- and has been for a very long time and probably will be continue to be for the rest of my life. That's the hardest thing to do. It's the one thing that I ha- make no mistake. It is really hard. Um, what allows me to do it better and what allows me to do it more every, every time I do it is the recognition that it makes me, like I said, that's where your power comes from. That's where you are the most influential. Uh, and that's when you are the most credible and that's where you can make the most positive impact and most positive change. Uh, so I, I know pragmatically, I know objectively it's absolutely the right thing to do. And it's still really, really hard. Uh, and so anybody that's sort of contemplating that part of their personal leadership journey or contemplating how they want to maybe make some personal change, it's not easy and it doesn't get easy. It gets easier. It does. I promise you that it does get easier, but it's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. It's just not something any of us want to do. Hey, everybody, let's talk about how bad I suck today. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, it's, it's some of the hardest work. And so yeah. I think we've laid out really solid groundwork for how to do the cultural assessment. I think we've also laid the foundation for the next conversation, which is going to be, you've done your assessment and you've made the realization that your culture in your team, organization, division, whatever the case may be, is unhealthy. How do we start to rectify that? That's going to be our next deep dive. But before we do that, before we do that, the other thing that people wanted is they wanted some quick hitters. They wanted yeah. some they wanted some comparative work between the world of medicine and the world of the military on some really what I think are vital topics. Okay. And so let's <laughs> let's 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 bust through these in our last All couple right, let, of minutes. Let's okay. hear it. So the first one was our two professions, the world of the military and the world of medicine, are incredibly popular in the world of culture with respect to TV movies, things like that. So Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. For you, the best or most realistic movie about the military? Uh, Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is so good. It's it is it is the most legit movie. It's a series, uh, but that is if you want to get the closest thing to reality, Band of Brothers is it. I'm going to pivot to a TV show for the world of medicine, and I'm going to say Scrubs. Um, <laughs> right on. <laughs> it's completely insane. It's, it's brilliant satire, but if you were to look for every single specialty, everything that happens in a hospital in the most sort of extreme and bizarre and right, we're looking to be honest. That's the one that's by far the most honest and realistic. And it's also hilarious and absurd, which oftentimes medicine can be. Uh, all right. Good to know. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Most unrealistic. TV show or movie uh, about the TV. Military. There is a, a and if TV you say Top show, Gun, I'm I'm we're we're just I'm gonna cry and everyone will I won't, be upset. So please don't. Say I won't Top Gun. say it. Uh, <laughs> there's just too much influence in that movie. There was a a show called Pensacola Wings of Gold, uh, oh, which was out that. for just the absolute, the worst. Uh, I'd never seen anything that bad in my life. It's it's awful. <laughs> so the one for me, and it's not close, is Grey's Anatomy. That I show think. has been on for so long. And I think it's more just because of the soap opera phenomenon, but whenever they do anything to do with medicine, it's, it's eye roll city. And I think people can probably hear my <laughs> eyes rolling from across the neighborhood because it is, <laughs> it's just yeah. nowhere close to what we're supposed to be doing. All right. Yeah. Next one. The best place to get food late at night. The wardroom on an aircraft carrier. So, uh, on an air, 
craft carrier that way deep down in the bowels of the ship, there's a little place, a little cafeteria called the wardroom. And after you've done a night carrier landing uh, and you've come back in the middle of the night after a combat mission or just something that just made you miserable and your legs are shaking and you're just uh, just just trying to come down from from the uh, the terror of the night landing on the on the carrier, you'd go down to um, a place called the wardroom and get something called mid, mid rats, which was midnight rations. And you'd order a thing called a Barney Clark, which was a uh, basically it was a hamburger with a, a fried egg and whatever else you could put on there and, and a giant thing of cheese and dressing. And it was really designed to give you heart disease. Uh, I think it was named after uh, like the first artificial heart patient or something along those lines. But man, it was um, it was what cured your ills at two o'clock in the morning on the ship after a late night trap. It sounds absolutely delicious and I want one. It was it was good, man. Every <laughs> I promise you, every fighter pilot who's ever landed the carrier right now is listening to this is is smiling. I promise you I that. I love it. So for uh, for me, it's you make your way to the cafeteria in the UC San Diego Medical Center because the chefs there at two o'clock in the morning they know that it's people who have had a tough day if they're still awake at two o'clock in the morning, and yeah. they basically everything is double or triple portions. So you get the triple size slab of lasagna, you get the triple size scoop of mac and cheese, you get two pieces of chicken, whatever it is, it's double or triple size, which is kind of the same concept, right? You just need, you just need a bolus of sugar and salt and water and fat and whatever. And so the medical center at UC San Diego, the, the, the cafeteria in the UC San Diego medical center, they just, they subscribed that they, they gave the people what they wanted at three o'clock in the morning. All right. That's worst, awesome. Worst stretch of sleep deprivation, most consecutive hours you've been awake. Uh, probably about 72 hours. Oh no. Uh, Yeah. My first, probably that big push into Ramadi when we, uh, were up planning, uh, for a long time, conducted that operation. I, you know, there's a, probably a decent chance I might've fallen asleep and not been aware of it, you know, for a two, three minute stretch. But me and two of the guys on my team, um, just basically moved from, uh, building to vehicle to building to vehicle and just were kind of driving our way in and, and probably two or three days straight. I've got some photos somewhere where I was, I was like bumming cigarettes and, and bumming dip just to keep myself awake, uh, until eventually we had to go on a little, uh, sleep shifts. I, I might've snagged honestly, Mark, maybe like a five minute nap here or there once or twice. But in terms of like literally just being out doing a big push, it was, it was probably that. That is, that's that is. a tough one. I think mine was my intern year and it was 42 consecutive hours. And it was actually really hard to fall asleep when I finally was off duty and able to go lie down. It took me a long time to actually wind down to fall asleep. Yeah. I can imagine in your line of work that that, that sleep deprivation just becomes part of life. You just, you, you just kind of get used to it. All right. The last question, the most common thing you are asked about being a fighter pilot. What's it like to land on a ship? What's it like to land on a ship? I would ask you that. Yeah. Yeah. People want to know, you know, cause you know, they've seen Top Gun and they've seen in the movies and people just want to know what it's like to land on a ship. I'm probably the worst guy to ask because it mostly terrified me the whole time. Most self-respecting fighter pilots will tell you it's awesome and they love it and uh, that it's exciting and all those things. And, and it is, man. It is. There's nothing. You can't replicate a night carrier landing anywhere else. There's no way to replicate it. There's no other thing like it in the world. And there's those that have and those that haven't. And, you know, if you've, everybody's had what's called the night in the barrel, uh, which is the ship is moving aggressively. The waves are, are pounding the, the flight deck and, and it's just, you know, 
six, seven times to try to get aboard the ship and it's terrifying. You're getting gas uh, refueling several times. We've all been there at least once, but people want to know what it's like to land on a boat. And uh, it's really hard to give a good explanation of, of what those worst nights are like. There is not a naval aviator in the world that doesn't know what I'm talking about. And then if you haven't done it, it's just too far removed. It's just too difficult to kind of draw something that it's comparable to. That, 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 that makes a ton of sense to me. And I would want to know that as well. So for me, and it's not close, what's your grossest story? Everybody wants the blood and guts yeah, and everything yeah. else. They want that story. And every, I think most docs probably have the, the, the quick list, the quick hitter list of two or three pretty, pretty bizarre or gnarly things they've seen in the course of their career. I bet I definitely want to know what that is for sure. It's definitely not podcast safe, but I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, this has been perfect. I think we've we've covered tremendous groundwork on the the vitally important work of doing a good cultural assessment, and I think we've also laid the foundation for hey, you're gonna have to come back for round three. So we can we can talk about <laughs> when we. I'm when we realizing there's a lot more out there to discuss, man. There, there's just a lot uh, in this this realm that it's applicable everywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly specific to you guys and your industry and mine too. But uh, there's just an unlimited amount of material for sure. Yeah. Well, we'll keep chipping away. Thank you so much for the time, and uh, we'll talk again soon. It's good to be here uh, again, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to coming back another time if your uh, audience demands it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.